invite you to take your Bibles and turn to our scripture passage. Uh, We are in Exodus 16, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So Exodus 16, 1 to 36. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community gathered against Moses, sorry, community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around, pots of meat, and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept parts of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? 
Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, uh, one that um, speaks of your grace to us, even when we grumble. We pray that you would speak to us today, Father. Show us how you love us. You want to care for us. Show us how you're our provider. Father, we pray that your word would do what only your word can do, build us up in Christ. And we pray that you would do that here in these next few minutes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, probably many of you know, uh, I love flying in airplanes. But more than that, I love being able to sit next to the window seat. There is something just magical about peering down our earth from above. And when you're landing in Salt Lake, if you come in from the, uh, you know, coming in from the south, sometimes you can look out of the left side of the plane and you get just a great view of the Ochre Mountains, which have always fascinated me. And I will often trace that road up Butterfield Canyon, uh, which is a beast of a bike ride, and yet I'm struck by how little it seems from the airplane. I'm reminded of those words from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? It just takes 13,000 feet up and you see how small we are. Now, when Lisa and I fly, we'll get to our row and she'll always joke, well, I'm guessing you want to sit next to the window. And I will point out, well, it is what's on my ticket, which I neglect to mention, I'm the one who booked the tickets. Uh, But she knows how much I love to look at the window. Now, some people like the window seat because they want to lean their head against it and take a nap. But in my mind, if you are not looking out of the window for at least 80% of the time, right, especially during landing and takeoff, I don't know if you deserve the window seat. (laughs) And the thing is, I could give up the window seat and let Lisa sit sit there. I'm capable of doing it. No one's going to stop us if we switch but I really don't want to, (laughs) right? Now, in my defense, I have done this a few times and let her sit there, but it's never an easy decision. Now, I think our passage gets at something similar. The heart of the struggle for the Israelites isn't if they wonder, is God capable of caring for our needs, right? They've seen that he's pretty much capable of anything. What they wonder is, does God want to do this? Does he want to care for us? And that is what so much of your struggle is, our struggle is. Not many of us doubt, well, God could care for me, but you doubt that he really wants to. 
And it's why so many of us are busy trying to control all kinds of things in our life. You're full of worries. You're stressed. Because you think, well, if I'm not looking up for myself, who's going to do it? And that's what this passage is about. We're working through the book of Exodus in a long series called Three Gifts. Looking at these three gifts that God gives his people, which includes us. And the first gift is the gift of redemption, which is the first 19 or so chapters. And what I want us to see this morning, what I want you to remember, is that God actually loves you. Will you love him? God actually loves you. Will you love him? This passage, is, it's a little bit confusing. There's a lot of repetition and kind of jumping back and forth. And so we're going to look at it in three ways. First, doubting his love and then the test of love, and then the proof of his love. So first, doubting his love. Moses begins telling us it's the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So basically, they're one month out of Egypt. And if you've been with us through this series, you know the plagues probably lasted several months. They had several months of daily being reminded that God is in control over all of creation, from the flies to the Nile River, and even over the sea, one of the most untamable forces. They see all of it. There is no sphere where God is not in control. For months they see that. And it takes less than 30 days for them to start grumbling and complaining and doubting. From God's perspective, it feels like probably, I'm sure many of you have had this if you have kids, you take your kids out for ice cream. Hey, we're going to go get a treat. And then they start arguing because they want the two scoops instead of the kitty scoop that you want to pay for, right? And you're like, is this how you're going to react when I give you nice things? You just always want more? It's never enough? God gave them all kinds of blessings. He miraculously parted the Red Sea. If you remember that passage, God turned what looked like a dead end into the very doorway to their future and freedom, They were so joyful about it. Last week, Pastor Brian led us through this this song they wrote about this incredible act of deliverance. But it doesn't take very long for them to start singing a new tune. Less time than it took Taylor Swift to go from writing, Today was a fairy tale, to her song, We are never ever getting back together. In chapter 15 to 17, Moses puts these three stories back to back of how quickly the Israelites start grumbling and thinking, God's not going to care for us. Now, we kind of read it all and we think, how are they so dense? How are they so dumb? But it's not as simple as that. Because when we read the passage closely, I don't think we see that they're doubting, could God care for us? They're doubting, does God want to care for us. Look at their complaint in verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They know God is in control of life and death. There, they continue, we sat around eating pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. It's hard not to think, having read the beginning of the book, that their memory is a little bit selective, like they're missing big parts of their experience in Egypt. They make their slavery in Egypt sound more like an all-inclusive vacation in Cancun. But notice their complaint, which is directed at Moses, but fundamentally it's a complaint against God. And they're saying, God, you did all this, 
just so you could use us for some cheap thrills. You don't actually love us. Did you just take us out here to watch us suffer? So God provides food, he says. And then in verse 12, he says, I'm going to provide this so that you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And that's the key part of it. This lets you know he's a God. He's proven that ten times over. But they wonder, is he our God? Does he care for us? He's more than capable of providing for us. But does he want to? I don't think it's an issue of doubting God's power. It's an issue of doubting God's love. And that is the struggle that so many of us face. You doubt God wants to care for you. Does he really love me? You struggle maybe to love yourself. You know your failures. Every day, you're reminded of the consequences of some of your screw-ups. And so you wonder, how could God love someone like me? Our world is set up this way. Whether it's from getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or a new job, or a promotion, it is about what do you have to offer? And if you don't have something to offer, you're not going to get picked. And maybe you haven't been getting picked for most of your life. And you have this feeling in the back of your mind, that's why God would never pick me. Maybe some of you are great at getting picked. Hey, you've got a lot to offer. You always bring something to the table. And you are smuggling that mindset into your relationship with God. Well, look at all these reasons why God would want me. And as the more mature Christian you get, or at least the more time you spend in the church, you even learn how to couch these in ways that sound very spiritual. Right? You say, oh, well, I know I'm a sinner like everybody else. We're all totally depraved. But you take, a good, you take pride in how good a job you do at confessing and fighting your sin and say, this is why God will love me, because I do a better job hating my sin than everybody else. And it's why so much of our relationship with God looks like the Israelites' relationship here. Grumbling against him. Will he really care for us? What do we bring to the table? And this leads us to our second point, the test of love. So God hears the complaining and he decides to do something about it. Again, verse 12, at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Now, sometimes we worry about the precedent that we set if you always respond to someone who complains a lot, right? Every one of us, you probably have friends or a family member who always needs something more, right? And you worry, well, if I give them this, they're going to come around and they're just going to learn that I'll do everything for them, which makes God's actions all the more striking in kind of these three stories, what we looked at last week, this week, and then in Exodus 17, is that God doesn't seem to be worried about that at all because every time they complain, he f answers their complaints. You can almost get the impression that the best way to get God to listen to you is to complain about it. God has a complaint box, and he actually reads it. I mean, what a picture of grace. God hears your complaints, even when they're wrong, and yet he still provides you bread in the morning. But tied to this gift is this twofold test. It's at the end of verse 4. In this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Now, we can read this 
Right? And the way our hearts are kind of wired, we think, oh, this is what I got to do for God to like me, for God to provide for me. If I follow God's instructions, then he's more likely to do these things for me. But that's actually opposite of what our passage shows. Right? Does God say, if you guys follow my instructions really good, let's aim for five days. Just follow my instructions for five days, and then I'll give you manna from heaven. No. That's not at all how he works. He says, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Not because you followed my instructions. Actually, the opposite. You're grumbling about me. Did you notice how many times the word grumbling is repeated over and over in this passage? Grace comes when they don't deserve it. Grace comes before he tests them. The purpose of this test isn't to decide if he's going to feed them or not. It's to show something deeper. Do these people love me? Do they trust me, God, to provide? And they can show that trust, that love, by following these very practical instructions I'm going to give them for how to get food. And it'll show what they trust in. Do they trust that God will provide for them one day at a time? Or do they trust in their own hands to go and gather the food? And they won't be as dependent upon God. And this test comes in two forms. First, will they only gather what they need for the day? Or will they kind of squirrel away a little bit extra for a rainy day? Each person is to take an omer, which is about two quarts. One omer for every person in your home. And so, Moses then adds his other instructions. Don't keep any of it until morning. And that's the test. Right? When you eat that last piece of bread from the basket and you look down, there's just some crumbs left. Will you trust that tomorrow that basket will be filled again because of God's provision? Or will you look at that basket and say, you know, let's just take this little bit here and we'll put it under the napkin so we don't see it and we'll save it for tomorrow. Just in case God doesn't provide for us. Just in case he forgets us tomorrow. Let's say people can't help it, right? They, they have to take a little bit more. Actually, the text doesn't quite say that. It could be something, a combo of some people taking more than those two quarts and think, you know, I'm going to take a little bit extra and save it for that day when God probably forgets about me. Others, though, maybe took the right amount, but thought, you know what? I'll just eat half of it today, and then I'll save the rest for tomorrow. I'm really frugal. I'll spread this out. But both learn that manna has a shorter shelf life than ripe bananas in July. But the next morning, it's full of maggots and it stinks. And what's the test? Will I live my life dependent upon God's provision day by day? Or will I diversify and give God 50% of my trust, but then put the other 50% of my trust and my ability to gather a little extra manna, or my self-discipline to not eat it all today and save a little bit for tomorrow. I mean, this is super hard for us to do, to put your hands, to put your life into God's hands every day, to end that day with nothing left and trust that God's going to give me what I need for tomorrow. Now, it's kind of ironic, I think, because sometimes it feels easier for us to say, oh, well, I trust God with the big things like salvation. I know God's going to save me. 
But it is so hard for us to trust God with those day-to-day needs. Right? Like, oh, I trust I'll, I'll make it to heaven, but in terms of finding a spouse or finding a job or finding a place to live or finding a parking spot, I'm going to take that into my own hands. And it comes with a lot of worry and anxiety and all kinds of other things. And it shows we probably don't trust God as much as we say with those big things because we struggle to trust him with the most basic of things. And it goes back to that central theme. Why do we struggle with this? We know God could take care of us, but we doubt if he really wants to. Another test that God gives is with the Sabbath. On the sixth day, each person is to gather double so that on the Sabbath day, they don't have to go out and gather any food. It's a day of rest. It's the one day when manna lasts through the night. But some of them don't listen. Instead, the Sabbath day comes, and they go out and find some more manna. But they can't find any. It's all gone. It's disappeared. Now, some of those people that did that are the ones that just love working, right? They're the people that have trouble taking a break. They've always got to be working on something. Oh, let's go gather some more manna today. It'll be fun for everybody. Maybe some of them, though, are people that were a bit lazy. Ah, it's too much work to gather twice as much today. We'll just go get some of the scraps that are left over tomorrow. That's what's beautiful about God's system here. It's this balance that it shows. You've got to work if you want to eat. But you aren't rewarded for working a bunch more than other people. In the end, you're only going to get what you need. Now, we shouldn't build an economic policy off this, and it shows this interesting principle that we can see throughout the Bible that challenges both aspects of, kind of pure capitalism and pure socialism. You've got to work, but in the end, there is no advantage to working too hard. So will you trust God to be your primary provider? And we show a lack of trust really in two ways. Some of us work really hard so that we never find ourselves in a place where we are actually dependent on God's needs. And you wouldn't call yourself greedy. You just call yourself prudent, wise. I just need a little bit more to be settled, have everything taken away, taken care of. You're always building your emergency funder, saving more, saving a little bit more. Maybe this plan for early retirement. And when there's an issue in your life, you immediately come up with a plan. Here's how we're going to fix it, and here's how we're going to make it work. What's so hard about this is these things aren't bad in themselves. And there's so many examples in Scripture where we need to be responsible. We need to be prudent. Sometimes it is good to save for a rainy day. The challenge is there is this line that is so hard to discern between being responsible and letting your hard work take the place of trusting God. But also think of the Israelite who gathers just the two quarts for himself, right? He gathers right now. I'm not greedy, but eats only half of it, so I can have the rest tomorrow, right? And we tend to reward frugality in our uh, culture. Oh, this person's so frugal, that's a good thing. But here, it showed you're not trusting God's provision for you. You're trying to manage his provision. Oh, God's going to give me this much, I better manage it to make it last. You're unwilling to fully enjoy what God has given you today. Perhaps even in the back of your mind, you're thinking, if I deny myself all this man, I'm going to eat less than everybody else because I've got higher standards. God's going to be pleased with me, right? Because I'm going to deny myself. I think this shows 
Sometimes you doubt God wants you to enjoy the good things in life. You feel guilty about what you have, so you don't use it all. And this test would have been so hard for the Israelites because they were primarily farmers, like many ancient people. And, and if you've grown up on a farm or spent time on a farm, you know that when it's harvest time, there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything in because if you wait too long, eventually the crops will spoil and you'll lose a good portion of what you planted. So during harvest time, you're working overtime to get everything in before it's ruined. And God's instructions here to take only what they need for one day challenges the very DNA of their economic system. And again, this passage isn't giving us a blanket rule for how to live life. There are times in Scripture when we're called to save and be prudent. But this passage is going to challenge us by saying, be careful. Because sometimes it is very easy to call things prudence or responsibility or hard work that are actually mislabeling an underlying mistrust of God. This passage ties into money. Because money is, for us today, kind of that basic unit we need to survive. We, it's how we get food. And, and greed isn't about how much money you have in your investments or bank accounts. It's not about how much money you have. It's about how much time you spend thinking about money. You could have a spending sickness, but you could also have a savings sickness. And you could be poor or middle class and be just as greedy as the wealthiest person because of how much trust you are putting in money to solve your problems. That you're trusting money like you should be trusting God. And you think, oh, if we just have some more money, that'll give me the security I want. Either right now, to be able to afford my rent, or in the future, when I want to retire. And giving money away, I think, is one of the best ways to show trust in God as your provider. It is so easy for us to say, I've said this, well, I'll start giving more to God or start giving to God when I start having a little bit more. But if you're waiting till you make a certain amount before you start giving some of your money back to God, that shows you are not trusting God as your provider. You're saying, I got to manage this little bit, and once I get here, well, then I can give some back to him. Now, one thing I would challenge us, uh, us with, uh, this goes so much against our culture today, all right? With every raise you get, to not just give more away as a percentage, but to actually up the percentage you give away. Now, this is something kind of, Lisa, I've toyed with, and not, we, we do it very imperfectly. We've tried to kind of build this in the last couple years so that we are giving more and more away, and it's not like we do a great job at it. But I'll tell you, it is one of the best ways to discover how easy it is for your heart to get entangled with the love of money. And increased giving is one of the best antidotes to it. It's interesting because I, I said we don't build an economic policy out of this, but one of the main applications of this passage in the New Testament is about money. 2 Corinthians 8, 12 to 15, the Apostle Paul writes, Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. 
right? God cares about our heart. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have, right? There's some wisdom in it. Don't promise to give $5,000 if you don't have it. And, and of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. And he's not saying you need to take some vow of poverty. But he's saying, I only mean that there should be some equality. As the scriptures say, quoting from our passage, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. If God has given you a lot... Now, the problem is nobody thinks they have a lot because you're always comparing yourself to the person above you instead of all the people below you. But if God has given you a lot, he's given you a lot financially, that doesn't mean he's given that to you so that you can just have a bigger bank account than other people. If he's given you a lot of time, it's not so that you can just enjoy more rest and leisure than other people. If he's given you a lot of talents to get a lot of work done, the capacity to do a lot of things, it's not so that you can work more hours or be more successful than other people. God has entrusted you with those things so that you can make other people's lives better. So is this community, if you're a member of this church, this is the place that you have pledged to make the life of this body better And is that reflected in the ways where God has blessed you? Does this church receive, the people of this church receive the blessings that God has given you? Is the global church benefiting from what God has given us? That Grace Baptist Church in Kisumu or Nairobi, where we support and have these relationships, is their church better off because of how God has blessed us? And this brings us into our last point, the proof of his love. The people gather this bread from heaven, and they'd never seen anything like it, and so they give it a new name, manna. It's white like coriander seeds and tastes like wafers made with honey. Now, back then, they didn't have sugar, and so the only way you could sweeten things was with fruit or honey. Now, honey, though, was really rare because there weren't ways to farm honey like we have today. You couldn't set up a beehive in your backyard like we do today. The only way you got honey was if you were lucky enough to stumble across a hive in the woods. Honey was a rare treat. One commentator thought maybe the best way to kind of describe what the Israelites are describing here was to say something like, it was the best thing we'd ever tasted. And so they wouldn't forget, God tells them to take one serving of manna and put it in a jar to be reminded of how God provides for us. God doesn't, when you're starving, give you an expired can of beans in the desert and say, well, here, this will get you through it. No, he gives you some of the best food imaginable. See, it wasn't just about the bread. He wasn't just giving them bread to fill their stomachs from heaven. Here God was showing them of a preview of when it came down to it, that he would feed his people with his very life. John 6, 32, right next to the passage we read for the call to worship. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Israel's biggest problem wandering in that desert wasn't that they were hungry. 
it was that they didn't trust that in the end God wanted to provide for them. And it's likely that your biggest problem isn't the circumstances that you face right now, but how you are not trusting God's provision in the middle of those circumstances. And to answer that question once and for all, does God want to provide for us? God says, I'll show you how far I'll go to provide. I'll become the bread. My body will be broken. My blood will be poured out so that I can have you. At the cross is where God shows most clearly this is how much he wants you. You know how much something is worth by how far you are willing to go to have it. The sacrifices you are willing to make in order to attain it. And friends, what it cost God to have us was his very life. It is what we see sitting at the table here before us. The life of his one and only son, Christ, his true son. And it's only by feeding from that bread, the bread of Christ, that your heart can be changed to discover how wide, how deep, how high, and how long his love is. Do you doubt that God is going to care for you in your current sufferings? Friends, his answer's on the table. He will go as far as it takes, even if it takes his death. Do you believe that God could care for you in these circumstances, but he probably doesn't want to? As you eat this bread and wine, would that put an end to that question? He's died for you. He's died for your sins. He died for your lack of trust. He died for your constant grumbling one week after he answered your last prayer. And now he lives to take you home. And he's given us this bread from heaven to remind us every week he is our provider. He is what you need. I mean, how long will you continue to sin by doubting his love? How long will your heart stay hardened to the grace that he pours out to you every day? Put your trust in Jesus and come and eat and drink of his life. Let's pray. Father, we need you so badly, and yet it is discouraging how much time we spend thinking of all the other things we need. You are the source of life. You sustain the lilies of the field. How much more will you sustain us? The universe is held together moment by moment by your word. How much more will you hold us together? Father, our eyes aren't fixed towards you. They're fixed to all the things we want, all the things we're worried about, and all the ways we wish we could fix it or we're trying to. And it's eating us up. Father, now in this moment, give us the bread we need. Open our eyes to see contentment, provision is so close. If only we would trust you for it. Give us that trust, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Show.